Good evening and welcome to Slam the Gavel, the show that tells it all regarding family court, other court issues, as well as CPS. I'm your host, Marianne Petrie, and there is a non-denominational retreat at the Resolution Center of Jacksonville, Florida. This will be a time of support and renewal for parents and grandparents on the journey of parental alienation, standing strong in resilience, paving the way for good health and a great future. This will take place April 22nd through the 24th of 2022. I will have everything in the podcast notes. I have a return guest. I have Judith M. Weigel back on. She is a divorce mediator, mediator, and she's been so for 11 years, a legal document assistant for 10 years, and in private practice family law for 10 years. We're going to talk about a very, very huge subject that uh, everyone's talking about in the legal profession right now. It is called paraprofessional. And I'm going to let Judith tell us all about it. And um, we need to know what this is. Yes, we do. Not only, Marianne, and thank you for having me back on, not only is this enormous conversation that's been going on in the legal community in California since 1987, although it has not taken hold specifically at But this idea of having a paraprofessional uh, in between uh, uh, choices for legal services, in between a lawyer and doing it yourself, um, has taken a foothold in Utah, Arizona, and the state of Washington. Possibly Minnesota. I read that in one article, but definitely Arizona, Utah, and Washington State. Washington State being the first one to add the services of a legal, uh, a paraprofessional in 2012. But they have restricted new licenses as of 2018. Now, let's talk about what a paraprofessional is. And this is where you, because you have been part of the legal system as the public, and you have your own opinions, ergo your podcast, and those listening who need the services of the legal system. Here's what a paraprofessional is. It is a level of legal service, much like an attorney, but not exactly, although it does take two aspects of what an attorney does, and only an attorney does, and gives it to another non-attorney. And those two aspects are giving legal advice, and showing up in court to hearings, not trials, but hearings, and representing the client. So the paraprofessional would be taking these two pieces of work that only a lawyer could do, that a lawyer goes to law school for, and gives it to somebody who's not a lawyer with the understanding and expectation that the paraprofessional would charge less money. So the whole concept was to provide access to justice. Marianne, you can talk about the word justice all day long. (laughs) To provide access to justice, meaning the legal system, meaning legal services, to people who can't afford $400 an hour plus plus. I know lawyers charge different rates in different states, California being an enormously expensive state, along with New York and a handful of other states. 
the hourly rates for attorneys are $400 plus an hour for good attorneys. So when you see an attorney in uh, some of the coastal states that are less than 300 or less than 400, you should really dig a little deeper just to make sure the person's credentials are great. Because as one of the attorneys that I use to refer my clients to as a mediator and as a legal document preparation company, I mean, he's great. And he actually said, his name is David Yamamoto. I'm going to praise all the great attorneys. And <laughs> I'm really going to talk about the unfortunate reality that we have a lot of bad attorneys, meaning people who are only in it for the money. Mm -hmm. We have too many of them in the system, which really dwarfs and, and, and creates a negative pallor on those really good attorneys. And how do you sift out the good from the bad when you actually need legal services? Mm -hmm. It's very difficult. So David actually said in one of my professional colleague meetings last year, you know, we're all pricing our services to the public. And those of us who actually care and would never overcharge and wouldn't even take cases. David does not take a case if he doesn't believe you need full representation from mm -hmm. an attorney. He just won't do it. He said, first of all, it's, it's inappropriate. And second mm -hmm. of all, you're going to realize it at some point and wish I had told you your case should not be hired by an attorney. It's too simple. In California and in several other states, there is a level of service in family law and bankruptcy that is already there to help the public have affordable legal services. And I have one of those licenses. And the license is called Legal Document Assistant. I am a legal document preparation company. I do not give legal advice, which means I don't look at your particular situation and tell you what the outcome could potentially be mm -hmm. or tell you how to make decisions or what the options are in decision making. That's called legal advice. Mm -hmm. I don't do that. I talk in broad strokes, Marianne. Mm -hmm. So I'm in family law. So I talk about what is community property, not what you have that's community, but what constitutes community property, what constitutes separate property. So I can talk in generalities like Google Law School can talk, right? So you can, you can really look up anything on Google. And I do it. If I don't want to call one of my attorney colleagues, Mm -hmm. I just look up on Google if it's something simple, and I have been further educated that way for quick answers to things for my legal edification. Mm -hmm. And people do that, too. The general public does that, too. Uh, once in a while, it can be a little confusing, but generally, they'll get decent information. So we already in California and a handful of other states have a level of service that will at least get documents filed, maybe not every single document, some belong under the litigated category, like uh, what we call ex parte decisions, emergency orders mm -hmm. that the court needs to make, um, maybe in spousal support, child support, or something that is potentially financially or life-threatening, domestic violence. I can't 
file anything like that. Only <laughs> attorneys can because they must be filed in person at the courthouse and the attorney needs to be there to represent you and argue for it. Even if you, mm -hmm. the client can't show up, the attorney can show up for you. So I can't do that. But I can do the garden variety, divorces, legal separations, parentage cases, etc., and write settlement agreements. But adding the paraprofessional level of service would mean that I could also give you legal advice and show up in court. Whereas on the outside of it, on the face of it, this may seem like yippee, this is great for the average citizen. Let me tell you what the dangers in that are. And I easily saw what the dangers are. And then I'll, let me tell you why I think this is happening. The dangers in that are, in order to give legal advice, I need to know case law. Mm -hmm. I need to have researched enough case law to put an argument together in court, i.e. litigate, to really give a client all the nuances of the law. Mm -hmm. I don't know that. I don't argue cases in law. Mm -hmm. I could have an account with what we call Westlaw. It's a service nationally that gives you a database of case law. I had to use that when I was getting my paralegal license mm -hmm. in 2014, and it's fascinating and cool and interesting, but in my mediation practice and in my legal document uh, assistant practice, I don't need it. Mm -hmm. So I don't know it. So that's one thing that I would need to know to be an efficient paraprofessional. Now, the other part, showing up in court and representing the client, I'm actually fascinated with. I think that's really cool. And I think that when the average citizen goes in to represent themselves, and I'd love you to speak to this in a second, <laughs> when the average citizen goes in to represent themselves, there's a way you have to speak to the judge. Mm -hmm. There's a way you have to conduct yourself. There's a way you have to organize your information so that the judge will take you seriously and so that you can communicate properly. Mm -hmm. So before I go any farther, how did you get to the point of representing yourself? And when you started to represent yourself, Marianne, did things start working in your best interest better? Well, I got to the point of representing myself because I simply ran out of money. And um, I had to represent myself as far as, you know, I did have one win in Superior Court. That was a major victory. Um, if I did not have that win, I would be in and out of prison every three months for child support. Um, yeah, we, the, the gist of that was is the lower court judge uh, continued the charade that I never lost my job as a nurse, but yet I could still make thousand dollar a month payments. <laughs> you know, I remember this. I remember this. Yes, yeah. be, because of the false indications. But anyway, um, you know, I just always treated the judge with respect. You know, good morning, Your Honor. When it was my time to talk, you know, I was, you know, very calm, cool, collected. That's and just do your best. Um, 
you know, it's, it's, it's hard to do when the opposing attorney is in collusion with the judge. You're, you're not going to win. Can we talk about that a second? Mm-hmm. So it's really, it's, it's in, like incest almost. Yes. The legal system is like a family committing incest. It is. This is what I've never been able to make sense of. So inside of the the business of law, the practice Mm -hmm. of law, the attorneys like to say, I still call it a business. Mm -hmm. When you sell services for money, that is, that transaction constitutes business. Okay. So you can't help not know each other. At least the Mm -hmm. attorneys can't help not know each other. Why? Well, because you go to legal seminars. You go to education classes, you go to monthly bar association meetings. So you get to know one another and then you argue cases against each other. Mm -hmm. But then here's where it gets dicey. You have the same country club memberships, your kids go to the same school and you Mm -hmm. get to know each other personally. Mm -hmm. And somehow this personal relationship can maybe, be influence the way you represent a client. And I'm going to tell you a story that blew me away that I was part of. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to tell you how the attorneys and the judges are, uh, are in, incest and <laughs> can experience legal incest. Don't let me forget to go there. Mm-hmm. So this is how attorneys who are not ethical can be in collusion with one another to make money to uh, to your detriment, Mm -hmm. you the client, to your detriment. So I belong to a couple different bar associations. And this one bar association uh, that I belong to, I was attending an evening seminar, family law seminar. It is dinner at very small tables. So you get to network and know people, little tables of eight. So you have dinner first and then the program follows. So I'm sitting at this little table of eight. I went by myself. I didn't go with any colleagues. And to my left were two attorneys. Now to my left was two inches. That's how close together everybody is. Mm -hmm. So two attorneys that had been practicing law a while. I mean, they were either in their 50s or 60s. I mean, you know, you you can kind of tell how old we each are. Mm -hmm. So they have experience. My only point is they have experience. One attorney is telling the other attorney, they're in separate practices, hey, I got a great new case in today, meaning this is going to make me money, not this case is going to be fascinating. There's aspects to it I've never dealt with or that are are really interesting to argue because, of course, you go into law because you like to pull concepts apart. You like to defend people. Uh, some people go in it to hurt people. That, mm-hmm. that actually um, activates and motivates a side of them that allows them to be hurtful, I guess, and pound mm-hmm. people. There are people like this. Anyway, I just got this great new case in today. The other attorney is eagerly listening and the attorney proceeds. And I heard from opposing counsel today. Mm-hmm. Opposing counsel said, get ready. We're going to paper you to death. 
Now let's talk about this a second. Opposing counsel was representing husband who had all the money. And it was already understood husband was going to pay for both attorneys. Like there's a lot of assumptions in little sentences that were said. There's, a, there's uh, normal assumptions that go into this. Mm-hmm. Possibly the attorney that I was listening to already said I'm representing the wife. Opposing counsel's representing the husband. More than likely that was already said. So opposing counsel says, get ready, we're going to pay for you to death. And then the attorney speaking said nothing. It was quiet. They're both kind of shaking their heads. And I said, excuse me. I mean, I didn't mean to eavesdrop. I am just sitting two two inches away from you. And I found your conversation interesting. May I ask, if you don't mind, how you responded to opposing counsel? And the attorney looked at me puzzled and said, well, what are you talking about? And I said, well, how did you respond? I'm so sorry. I followed your conversation. It was interesting. And I wondered how you responded. And the attorney said, well, how should I have responded? How should I have responded? And this is the problem in the legal profession. And I said, well, you could have said any number of things like it's completely unethical for me to cause my client emotional pain. Mm -hmm. And there is pain in having to answer all these filings. Mm -hmm. Because in family law, these filings are really long and they require you to dig deep and spend time. And the more you spend time on paperwork and answering motions and subpoenas and this and that, you can't live your life. (laughs) Your life starts falling apart. You may lose your job, not because your character is questioned, but because you can't function. (laughs) Because You just can't do both things at one time. The divorce becomes your job. Mm-hmm. And if you have kids, oh my God, mm-hmm. how do you, how do you remain a parent? So I said, well, you could have said, you know, I cannot cause my client emotional pain just because your client's paying my legal fees. Number two, it's completely unethical to just create filings to create emotional pain. I mean, there are things called ethics and moral codes, don't laugh, that are on the state bar websites in every state that all attorneys are supposed to abide by. Because in law, it's a money pit. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can get wealthy off of your client's pain. That's not okay. You know, that's not what people supposedly get into the area of law for. And then um, I said, and third, you're tying up the court's time unnecessarily. You know, instead of letting the court really deal with cases that are serious, that need to um, be heard sooner rather than later, you're tying the court's time up with frivolous filing. So I can't accept that from you and please don't do it. You could have said a number of things like, did you? (laughs) And she just still didn't say anything. And I said, look, I'm not an attorney. I'm a legal document preparation company and a mediator. And this is why I have a job because of this. Mm -hmm. And then the the seminar started and I couldn't continue the conversation. Mm blew me away definitely oh 
and it was like nothing. Mm -hmm. It was like a normal walk in the park conversation. I can't imagine how many more times this is done. Now, let me just mm -hmm. say, not every attorney would have accepted that. Mm -hmm. Not every attorney would have just said, oh, God, this is great. I'm going to make a lot of money. Who cares what my client feels? Who, who cares if my client is collateral damage mm -hmm. in this case? And should I assume my client is going to uh, you know, lose on the subjective areas of law? You know, there are objective areas, there are subjective areas. There are areas of law and family law that are just no-brainers. This is the way it goes. Mm -hmm. You know, community property laws, you know, as long as something was purchased with dollars you made from your jobs, from date of marriage to date of separation, unless you have a prenup or a postnup, you've created community property. Mm -hmm. But then there's other subjective things. The length of spousal support is subjective. Mm -hmm. Even though in California we have this algorithm system called the DISO master that is licensed by every courthouse and every legal professional to start running numbers for child and spousal support, there's still a level of subjectivity mm -hmm. in the amount of money and the number of years in spousal support. Mm -hmm. so, so there's all of that. And now let me go to the incestuous relationship between attorneys and judges because this is seriously important. We can't change this. The only change can, can come within the legal system itself. We can't change this, but we can be aware of it. Mm -hmm. So I didn't even know this. An attorney on my podcast, The Amicable Divorce Expert, little plug, but on my podcast, I had an attorney uh, who was explaining to me, listen, Judy, this is how it works. Have you ever gone to one of these dinners celebrating the judges? And I said, yes, I actually did go to one. He said, did you notice who bought the tables right in front of the dais where the judges were sitting? And I said, well, no, I, I didn't. He said, if you go back to any of these dinners, all the tables are taken up by the law firms to charge $1,000 an hour. That's and those law firms will normally get preferential, preferential treatment by the judges mm -hmm. because those are the law firms that support the campaigns when, the, when uh, lawyers are running for judgeship. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's, that's disgusting. How, yeah, that's how that works. Mm -hmm. that, that's how that works. And so, but, you know, interestingly, what if you have two opposing counsels that are both... Uh, law firms that contribute to the judge's campaigns, which shouldn't be horrible that you contribute to somebody's campaign, but it kind of is like corporate contributions to political campaigns. You know, that's a big discussion. How much should corporations give? When corporations give to a political campaign, then they start getting laws that support whatever they want to do, toxic waste dumps, mm -hmm. unregulated pharmaceutical prices, things like that. So there's where the incest is created. So I was reading a lot to prepare for this interview with you. And I was reading, okay, I get the access to judgment argument. I mean, the, the access to justice argument, meaning access to legal services without spending your 401k. Mm -hmm. I get all that. But one of the arguments in one of the articles that I read, and it made me smile, said, 
maybe the legal system should spend more time on the state bar level dealing with disciplinary actions against attorneys. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to that? You're, you're shaking your head. Can you speak to that a second? Um, I would like them to read the complaints and really take them seriously. When you're citing evidence and saying this is unethical behavior, we don't need to have a letter come back to us two weeks later saying wasn't unethical enough. Where do they draw their lines? I, I, I'm appalled at them. They, you can have all the evidence in the world and it's just not unethical enough what they have done. Marianne, I have to ask you, how did the, the untrue allegations kept, keep getting accepted by the court in your case? How, how did that keep happening? Well, even though I was exonerated by a CPS judge of okay, these two, God. okay, so the family court judge knew I was exonerated, so none of that happened. He wanted to continue the charade that I was emotionally abusing my children, even though I was exonerated. Technically, we should have gone back to 50-50, which is what the kids wanted. So upon my exoneration, we just should have gone back to 50-50, but the ex and other individuals wanted a non-custodial parent to pay child support. I don't know what they were thinking when they caused me to lose my nursing job and license over this, that they were going to get a thousand a month out of someone that, that has no income. Yeah, pretty impressive on that. Um, I, I need to ask a little question. Did the nursing field then come back to you once you were exonerated? Because this is where the justice system can ruin somebody's life. That's mm -hmm. why I'm asking this question. No, they did not come back. In fact, I, um, you know, let the hospital know that I'm exonerated a second time. I can come back. No response. See, because they knew there were, a, you know, another child. Who's to say that they could rehire you back? And of course, you have to keep up with the computer system. So they would have to retrain you on the computer. They put a lot of time and energy retraining you on things that have gone on when you have not been in that job. So they figured, well, there's another child. We're not even touching this one because there could also be another false indication where she can't work again. Oh, so they looked at their investment in training mm -hmm. as the issue. Gosh, this right. computer system must be pretty complicated. It's pretty complicated. And, you know, the thing wow. is, it's, it's complicated. There were new dress codes. There's new, uh, you know, IV packaging coming out. There's new, wow. more up-to-date things that if you haven't been there in six months, so much can change. I don't, I don't wow. blame the hospital one bit. Okay. But it's because of what happened within the legal system 
that mm-hmm. the trajectory of your life dramatically changed. Mm-hmm. And so this is what can happen. This is what the legal system can do. The effects that they can have far exceed the results in the case. Mm-hmm. It can literally damage your life permanently mm-hmm. If you aren't the resilient person like you are, and I'm I'm sure some other people too, to say, okay, wait, this is horrible. This is unjust, but let me use this as a way to turn my life around in a better way and, you know, try and create a positive out of a negative, which you've done extremely well for yourself. But not everybody has that resilience. You know, some people are just beaten down to the point where they commit suicide. Mm-hmm. I mean, that actually does happen. I'm mm-hmm. not being overdramatic. Mm-hmm. People commit suicide when they are so pummeled, mm-hmm. so caught off guard that something completely untrue could be said about you, could be alleged, could be filed in court could be presented to other people and all of a sudden your life is trash. This is Mm -hmm. unbelievable. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, now something else I wanted to uh, uh, share. I'm putting a talk together uh, and I wanna present this to law schools and legal conventions, uh, bar associations. And and I have a team that's already presenting this and the title of the talk is raising the bar on the attorney brand. My hope is to change the way attorneys practice and think. And as I was doing my research to put the outline of this together, I came across a a survey that was done by Forbes.com magazine. It was done in 2018. It's not that long ago. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen an update on it, but it was the 15 most and least trusted professions in the United States. The most trusted profession, Marianne, Mm -hmm. nurses. Mm -hmm. You. What you used to do was the most trusted profession, followed by doctors, number two. You go all the way down to number 12 out of 15, and you find lawyers. Number 13 were business executives, 14 were car salesmen, and 15, Congress. Mm -hmm. That is horrible. So between the last four positions, you have number 12 lawyers and number 15 Congress, that's our legal system, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. least trusted. So this, this isn't good. So I'm hoping that um, by speaking to law students, mm-hmm. I have a fighting chance of explaining to them who have no clue how a law firm is conducted. So let's, we're going to talk about that in a second. Because again, this is why the paraprofessional idea came from. Um, I want to change, I want to set the law students up to make the most ethical decisions possible, to be a little more creative in how they practice law in terms of providing real life solutions to legal problems because it's needed. Sometimes something is simple 
as a real life solution, what we try and go for in mediation can end trial work, can cut the, the uh, cost to the client, and that in and of itself will make the client refer you. That mm -hmm. in and of itself will set up word of mouth referral, which is what everybody wants. Mm -hmm. um, and the other thing I want to talk about is saying no to unethical requests by employers and clients. Now, clients are a little bit of a problem too. Like your former husband was a problem in and of itself. <laughs> Who knows what went on in the mm -hmm. conversations between your former husband and his attorney? Mm -hmm. But I'm thinking, Marianne, if you were exonerated, using your case as our example today, mm -hmm. you're, you're our case law for today. So if you were exonerated by the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania, which is the highest court in Pennsylvania. Well, it, was, it was Superior Court. Okay, Superior Court. Okay. Mm -hmm. So if you were exonerated, exonerated by Superior Court, mm -hmm. apparently what your former husband said was untrue. The allegations were proven untrue, which his attorney should have figured out at the beginning. Well, Perhaps, go ahead. See that, that case that I won in superior court was 406 WDA 2017 that involved fighting the child support. I had already lost, I think it was three cases to superior court trying to get these kids back to 50-50, which is what they wanted. The kids wanted that. So, I mean, I, I did briefs, reproduced records. I did all of this for my kids to come back empty-handed. Um, I, I, I don't know what was going on with his attorney, but I did ask him, I said, what would you do if your wife was doing this to you? What would doing you do? What to you? Doing what to you? You know, um, putting you through all this court nonsense. Ah, and... okay, okay. If the shoe were on the other foot, yeah. my position, you're and right. your wife was in your client's position, mm -hmm. my husband. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, so I, I did ask him that in Superior Court, because we were in the other room where you hang up your coats. And he looked at me with some type of glimmer of compassion, but then that quickly turned into, I really don't care. And he walked out the door. I mean, he didn't say, I really don't care. He just look, looked at me and shook, kind of shook his head and walked out. Okay. So yeah. I, I think these attorneys just don't care. They want to make the money. Even though I was exonerated and we should have gone back to 50-50, the judge was in control of all of that. And he was going along with this big charade. And he was most unethical himself. In fact, we had gone to, believe it or not, a funeral home. We were standing in line at a funeral home. And who walks in but the judge? And he was with some super old lady. I don't know who it was. And I heard him because he was three people behind me. But he said, her custody case. And I looked behind <laughs> and I thought, I, I can't believe you're discussing my custody case at a funeral home. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. Notice when I gave my story, I didn't even name the Bar Association. Mm -hmm. I, I really don't want to do that. I don't believe in that. That's pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. No, as a matter of fact, 
I think it was in September of last year, I was at a fundraiser uh, for one of the nonprofit law firms in town that gives sliding scale, lower priced legal advice from lawyers who, you know, volunteer to do that uh, and work pro bono. And we did have a case mm-hmm. that I was mediating and that I had originally filed for. We didn't discuss the case. We specifically avoided acknowledging anything because it's improper. It's right. just simply improper. You can't be that comfortable with between legal professionals and discuss cases in public. You just can't be that comfortable. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of amazing to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but it's too... So going back to, I think this is an extremely important topic because we have two things going on. We have uh, uh, the price point for appropriate justice is wrong, is is too high for most people. Mm -hmm. And even if you start buying legal services, how do you even know you've gotten the right attorney until you're in it and you watch how the attorney is working in your best interest. I think that's an important point to maybe focus on a little bit because many people, I was reading an article just this morning that said every single one of us at some point in our lives will need an attorney, but don't hire one Mm -hmm. because we just can't afford it. And we're afraid of them. And we feel like we've fallen down a rabbit's hole sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll, I'll just give a simple example. We have social media mm-hmm. and social media can be positive and it can be negative. Mm-hmm. And you have these places like Yelp, review places, mm-hmm. where it's just a breeding ground for people to be horrible if they want to be horrible. Mm-hmm. You know, people, unfortunately, don't tell the truth. Mm-hmm. So when people are mad, and I know this just from being in mediation, you can tell a half truth and it'll sound like the whole truth and it all of a sudden makes somebody look horrible unless you get the other half of the story and oh my God, all of a sudden, this is a whole different story because now all the facts have been presented. Mm -hmm. And you can easily hurt somebody's business Mm -hmm. by putting untruths on social media. This is so, so these people walk into lawyers' offices. And if you walk into the right office, if you walk into a lawyer's office that's like you, that doesn't care, that mm-hmm. just wants to argue and win, and however they have to position the facts is however they have to do it. Or there's some attorneys that say, Yeah, this is kind of odious. Um, all right, so a couple of attorneys have already turned you down because they don't want to do what you're asking them to do. I'll do it. Mm-hmm. And, and that justification is somebody was going to take the case. Why shouldn't I? I ran into one of these situations years ago when I first started. I was dealing with a woman. In fact, I had inherited this case from the woman I bought this company from, Divorce Resource Incorporated. So the case had already been uh, filed. We were in the middle of it. And I had to write the settlement agreement. That's where I was. Well, um, there was a three-year-old child, one minor child, three years old, and the husband moved to another state. 
the husband wasn't doing his disclosures, wasn't participating, and did not file a response, which meant I could have moved the case forward for her in a slightly different way. Um, but, but there was child support and she really wanted to collect child support, which meant he had to be involved. Mm -hmm. So the deal she was ready to make with him, who she had already said is a drug addict, has unsavory drug addict friends, doesn't hold a job. The only way he makes money is selling drugs and people are crazy. You know, another uh, person I know was in the middle of a uh, custody case and the father of the child was posting uh, pictures of marijuana buds that he was selling on Facebook mm. and he's going to court and she's pulling these pictures saying, this is who you're ready to give custody to. I mean, people mm. just don't get it. Right. Anyway. Um, hold on. So where was I in this case? So we were talking about uh, a woman that was had a three-year-old that there you go bring me back to center thank you i get off on tangent <laughs> bring me back to center so this woman had a three-year-old child and even though she had told me about the lifestyle of the father of the child and that to have visitation the three-year-old would have to get on a plane she was ready to let dad have the three-year-old on a plane, going to another state where she had no control just to get the divorce over with. So I said to her, I'm not writing the settlement agreement. You mm -hmm. have to go somewhere else. If I have to give you some refund, I'll give you some refund. I don't care. I'm not writing this. I am not going to participate, even though I'm not legally responsible as a mediator or a legal document preparation company, even though I have no legal responsibility here. I am not going to, with a good, clear conscience, participate in putting words on paper that would potentially damage life-threatening situations to your son. Not going to happen. Mm -hmm. Her father was paying us. Now, we don't charge a lot of money mm -hmm. to do paperwork. I mean, under $2,000 to mm -hmm. do a full divorce. That is nothing in the mm -hmm. world of divorce, as you may know. Mm -hmm. And her dad said, thank you. Thank you. We're going with you and we're not going to allow that with happen. We're going to continue. But I called a couple attorney colleagues of mine and I said, you know, I'm having an ethical dilemma, even though for me, legally, professionally, ethics don't matter, but they mattered to me as a human being. Mm -hmm. And so I said to a couple attorneys, what would you do? And one attorney said, I'd take it. I'd finish it. Somebody's going to write the paperwork. It may as well be you. I said, you didn't listen to my premise. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about ethics right now. I'm talking about how you, and you really just kind of told me money is more important than ethics. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem in the legal system. Money is more important than ethics. And again, it's not everybody. So now we have the public. The public has a responsibility to keep the legal profession honest. Mm -hmm. The public has to want the best ethical, honest service. So here's what I hear. I need a shark. Let's mm -hmm. lawyer up. I want the, an attorney that's going to pummel the other party. Okay, so we're setting up the attorneys 
to behave in a way that at some point is going to bite you. Mm -hmm. It really is going to bite the person that wants to bend the legal system. And why would you want to do that? I mean, if we're not talking about a rape case or a murder trial, we're talking about a divorce for God's sakes. Mm -hmm. You know, you're not a criminal because you want to get divorced unless you are actually engaged in criminal activity. But just because you want a divorce doesn't make you a criminal. What do you need a shark for? Mm -hmm. There's law that will dictate how things get divided. Right, right. I mean, there are shades of gray. Now, the shade of gray is how much custody are you going to get? How much visitation time? Are you going to get joint custody or sole custody? And how much, how, how much percentage? Or do you need a monitor? Do you need a monitor there because you're such a horrible parent, allegedly? Um, or can you be with your kids on your own? You know, those are shades of gray. But, and, and then at least in California, and it's really different in other states for alimony or spousal support, vastly different. But in California, okay, there's shades of gray on how long spousal support can be granted and how much it will be. But other than that, things are kind of clear. What do you need a shark for unless the other parent is really engaged in some serious criminal activity like tax fraud, hiding mm-hmm. of assets, mm-hmm. you know, as a spouse that their business has been improperly run. I mean, okay, th- there are situations where you're going to need a sharp attorney, mm-hmm. but we're talking about the garden variety divorces. Yours was a garden div- variety divorce. Mm-hmm. You had kids, you had a few assets. What else? Mm-hmm. You know, why did it have to be that? Well, did you have, and I'm sorry, I don't re- remember, Marianne. In your opinion, and this is merely an opinion, do you think your former spouse had like issues, personality issues, anger issues, um, experienced things in his childhood that kind of skewed the way he engaged in relationships, therefore skewed the way he was detaching from a relationship. I am in agreement with that. Yeah. Okay. So that's a tough nut, you Mm -hmm. know, but you know, there's this gentleman, I think you know who he is, Bill Eddy, E-D-D-Y, that's Mm -hmm. written like what, 30 books on the high conflict personality and how to deal with the high conflict personality. And there is a way to deal so that an equitable division of anything can take place so that decisions can be made. And what I say to everybody when they come here, there's the law and then there's compromise. And divorce Mm -hmm. is an issue of compromise because even with the law to to provide a framework and a structure for decisions to be made, Mm -hmm. the backdrop of the marriage is going to drive the discussion on things that you think should be clear in division of assets. Who gets the house? This is 
the one of the biggest discussions going who gets the house mm -hmm. well we can both sell it and make money or the person who can't afford it can live in it for a while i mean you know drain their 401ks in order to make payments things like that mm -hmm. um but both attorneys should work towards mitigating that high conflict personality and understanding that everybody has to do a little compromising. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I was in urgent care last year, high blood pressure. Um, I am in family law, high blood pressure mm -hmm. and, and a horrible diet, by the way. Mm -hmm. So the doctor at urgent care said, by the way, Judy, what do you do for a living? And I said, well, I'm in family law. I'm a mediator and a legal document preparation company. Of course, she had her own divorce story. And here's where compromise comes in. She told me her divorce story. She said, well, as a doctor, she made more than her husband, although he, he earned a decent salary. He was working and they had one child. And to her, the child was the most important thing. She didn't disagree with the child being with her father, but didn't feel that dad wanted to be there enough, wasn't seeing that dad wanted to be participatory and would have been supportive in terms of homework, school activities, um, things like that. And, 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 so it was the custody issue that was kind of hanging the divorce up and they both had attorneys. Mm -hmm. And so she just said to her attorney, I'm pulling the plug. Here's what we're going to do. I just simply am going to ask him, what does he want to end the divorce? Name your price. And so of course the attorney <laughs> wanted to argue. She said, no, 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 no more court, no more nothing. What does he want? I'll give him what he wants. And so he came back with a financial package. Nothing had to do with custody. He came back with a financial package and she said, okay, that's fine. And he was surprised that she accepted it. And he said, okay, well then I have one more thing. I want a vacation to Hawaii. And she said, done. Is that it? He said, yeah, that's it. She told her lawyer to write it up. It was over. What does it take? What will it take? Now, in your particular case, would that have worked in any shape or form? Um, no, because whenever I sent a settlement offer in, and this is way after the divorce, this was during a federal lawsuit or whatever, um, I would send in a settlement agreement like, it's kind of a long story, but his lawyer would write back, you must be mentally ill. You must have mental health issues because he would go on, he would always call me mentally ill, even in front of child support officers. You know, it, it was just Can we just stop and talk about how unethical that is? <laughs> yes. I mean, that is beyond unethical. Keep going. Oh, yes. Uh, he would also continue. Well, he also chided that I had a lazy eye and he did that in a child support um you know because not, that because that has relevance I don't know 
Okay, go ahead. <laughs> but he just uh, uh -huh. is very, and the thing was, whenever we were in a child support conference, the ex and the attorney never looked me in the eye. They just, they could not look at me. So they had lazy eyes unto themselves. Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> yes. Because I, I would say to them, why can't you look at me? You know, why can't you look at me in the eye? And that's when his attorney said, which eye? Oh, this is so horrible. <laughs> this is the fear people have. Mm -hmm. Marianne, okay, so let me ask you something. In the actual divorce case, mm -hmm. what was the hangup? Well, see, there was, you know, what we did was we divorced amicably. We just wrote up our own settlement and we just uh -huh. went along our merry way. I gave them the house because I said, you know, I don't want it because it has bad memories. I just won't be able to save money and buy, you know, Something a different yeah. yeah. I want the kids when they visit you to have familiar surroundings. So they have their own rooms. They're used to it. Oh, that was really nice. No, that's super nice. And so what happened was, you know, we went on our merry way and until he met that other woman who uh, unbeknownst to me, or I don't know if I, like I keep saying, I don't know if I knew she worked in the courthouse. That's when things got kind of rocky. And then when I remarried, that was the nail in my coffin. Oh, so the divorce was actually not horrifying. You were both open to compromise. Mm -hmm. It was post-divorce that the issue of custody and child support came up. Is that right. it? Right. Years later. Years later. Years, because um, the divorce was final, say, in 04, and bad things didn't start happening until 2013. Okay, so this is, this is even worse. Mm -hmm. That something happened after everything was done and over with, mm -hmm. and now you're in a horrible situation. Right. Uh, I yeah, see, it. we were able to co-parent very well, I mean, to some extent, but then when his new wife uh, came into the picture, um, and I can kick myself because I set them up on a you know blind date. Oh, Marianne, it's too much. I know it's too much. Uh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> but um, she inserted herself in our co-parent relationship, and then she started doing that with my my oldest and she was stressing out the middle one and i i, I it's parental alienation right mm -hmm, mm -hmm. parental alienation dang right okay so going back to the paraprofessional and why this is happening so in my research, I didn't think in California it stemmed back to 1987. It's not taken foothold yet. But it's literally Washington State was the first state that had paraprofessionals. And they are now discontinuing new licenses as of 2018. So something must have happened. And there's an issue of malpractice that goes into this. So lawyers have to have malpractice insurance in order to give legal advice, in order to represent you in court. These are the two mainstays of a legal practice, representing you in court and giving legal advice. And of course, therefore, arguing your case. Mm -hmm. 
So something must have happened, and I have to do more research on this because I didn't know that. I thought Washington was still going strong. Utah and Arizona are still going strong, at least by all of my research. So I'm wondering, and this is in, in other articles I was doing research on, I was wondering if the paraprofessionals were starting to charge more and more money. You know, money and greed go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. You know, money is the root of all evil. It, it literally is true. Mm -hmm. it, it makes us do things that we know aren't right. Mm -hmm. and, and, and again, I can't emphasize more. I am not bashing all attorneys. Mm -hmm. There are some wonderful attorneys. And I have a list of wonderful attorneys that I readily give out to everybody who are very ethical and will say, I won't do that. I am mm -hmm. so sorry you have to go to another lawyer. That is unethical. Mm -hmm. You are asking me to work in a way that would be detrimental to me and mm -hmm. my level of honesty, but detrimental to the other party. And I that's not how I function. So mm -hmm. I want people to look for lawyers like that because ultimately you will be represented well. Even if you in a family law case are very hurt mm -hmm. and in your hurt state, go to an attorney and want to hurt back. A good attorney should not let you do that. Mm -hmm. A good attorney should say, first of all, I want you to see a therapist if you're not seeing one already. Mm -hmm. You need to take care of your emotions mm -hmm. before we put you in the legal system. This is something else I want to say to your audience as a takeaway. Mm -hmm. In a divorce, um, maybe in a criminal trial, but that doesn't really, you can't control time in a criminal trial. Mm -hmm. In a divorce, you can control when you file for divorce. And you also can control the speed or lack thereof in which the case proceeds. You really do have a lot of control. But I have found in my 10 years of practice that if you go through the emotions of transitioning out of the marriage first and go through the grief stages, Forgive yourself if there's things you need to forgive, apology, apologize if there's things you need to apologize for, mm -hmm. but just deal with the fact that you're coming out of a relationship that you thought was going to be forever. And if you have minor children, a whole nother layer of still being connected to your soon to be former spouse, mm -hmm. you know, that takes a lot of emotional healing to be able to do that and take care of the kids mm -hmm. you know not let the kids be collateral damage and to let you learn from that to learn to help you advance emotionally to use it to you know uh, maybe reestablish yourself in life so this is a wonderful opportunity. Divorce is a new beginning. It's the last sentence in all of my confirmation emails when I set appointments for people. Divorce is a new beginning. And I live by that. It, it, I was a, a product of divorce and I looked at it as a new beginning. Mm -hmm. But if you can do, if your attorney is going to engage in conversation like that, you found a wonderful attorney. Mm -hmm. If your attorney says, 
okay, I can do that. I can hurt them. We can do that. All right. I hear you. All right. I'm ready. You, okay. Run screaming, run screaming. Um, there are some divorce attorneys that are considered father's rights attorneys. Mm -hmm. Well, on the face of that, that may sound great, mm -hmm. but I don't want fathers to be afraid anymore. You don't mm -hmm. need father's rights attorneys anymore. Mm -hmm. You're shaking your head yes. Do you agree? I agree. Because the courts want both parents. The starting point for most courts is an equal division of time. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So that the kids can have the advantage of having the most exposure with both parents. Mm -hmm. So that's a good thing. That's really, you know, unless one parent is, you know, a substance abuser or something like that. But the regular situation where, you know, nobody has those kinds of issues. Um, yeah, the court wants exposure uh, equally to both parents. So it should start right there. And when you have an attorney that will do whatever you want them to do and take any charges you make against your soon-to-be former spouse and build that into a, a case, you have to remember, you're hurting your children too. Mm -hmm. And you, do you really hate your spouse that much that you would throw your children under the bus? Well, maybe you do, you know, maybe you're suffering for some, from some issues, but you know, I'm hoping the attorneys will kind of bring you to your senses and say, I'm sorry, not only are you going to be hurting your children ultimately, but if these allegations aren't really, 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 really true, what's your greater goal here? What do you really want to do? Why are you really hiring me? Mm -hmm. So you need these kinds of conversations out of your attorney. And now I want you to be aware of some things in the attorney business model. And it doesn't matter what area of law. Their attorneys are paid salaries. Mm -hmm. And if you, and you have to have X number of billable hours each month to equal your salary. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have billable hours equal to your salary, you have to create them. Mm -hmm. You have to then pull your files, your open files, and think of things to do. Think of correspondence to write. Think of phone calls to make so that you can charge your clients, so that you can have enough billable hours to justify your salary. Mm -hmm. I don't know how everybody feels about that, but clients become hip to that at a certain point. Mm -hmm. And I know this to be true because when I started my mediation career and before I had actual clients, I volunteered to work for the Los Angeles County Bar Association in the attorney client fee dispute department. So I was assigned cases in which I would have to provide three hours of pro bono time when a client filed a complaint at the local bar level against the attorney representing him or her because there was a fee dispute. They disagreed with how the attorney was filing. Maybe the attorney, they didn't feel worked. 
uh, equal to what they were being charged for and they saw billing line items in the billing that didn't make sense. Why did you do this? You didn't need to do this. We talked about this. Or, well, are we going to do things this way? Why are you all of a sudden now doing them that way? And why was I getting emails and calls? This has already been resolved. Mm -hmm. So those are fee disputes. And when I started mediating the fee disputes, that's when I really learned about the business model, the way that the, uh, the billing worked. And I said, oh, shoot. And then the more I just started meeting other attorneys in other areas of law, they said, no, 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 that exists in our area of law too, not just family law. So I think the business model has to change. I think uh, the way attorneys agree to take cases, remember the first story I told you, mm -hmm. I just got a great case in and we're going to pay for you to death. That should have been an absolute, don't you dare. Mm -hmm. No, no oh. don't you dare. Um, and an attorney should be turning you down if you want them to work unethically. They should not, they should be turning you down and you need to, you the public will be better served mm -hmm. if you want to be as honest as possible, yet make the relevant points in your case that are necessary. So I think that's uh, responsibility on the public side to keep their requests of the attorneys honest. And then the attorneys should not be engaging in anything other than the ethical representation of law. And that's my story, Marianne. I'm sticking to it. That's excellent. That's excellent. That's excellent advice. I totally am so glad you came on the show and I still want to have you back on <laughs> in the future. Oh, you know. I'll give you updates on how this talk is going. <laughs> oh, <laughs> definitely. Because I'm the enemy. By the way, in this whole paraprofessional movement to the attorneys, I'm the enemy. Mm. And I don't want this. I don't want this. We already have in many states a level of service that accommodates a lower price point. And I'm giving it. The legal mm. document preparation company. We don't need another layer of low-level um legal advice and representation in court. We just need the attorneys to not get crazy on pricing mm -hmm. and to maximize services for whatever they're charging. And, you know, to keep it honest, keep it minimal, you know, don't jump through complicated legal hoops if you don't have to. If you can talk it out, if you can mediate, so much more effective. Yes, I agree. Thank well, hey, uh, Oh, definitely. And how can people reach you? Uh, so divorceresourceinc.com. That's the website, divorceresourceinc.com. And you can reach us, you know, info at divorceresourceinc.com. Or you can call the office, 310 310-441-7555, 310-441. 7555 or my email address. The millennials love the emails more than they like the phone and the Zers, I'm sure. The Gen Z, I love millennials and Gen Z. <laughs> so for those folks, and one of my highest demographics is 25 to 35 year old people. So 
Um, my email address is Judy, J-U-D-Y, at divorceresourceinc.com. And I'll put this in the podcast notes as well. So Thank don't you, jump off. <laughs> Thank you. Hang on. Slam the Gavels, a podcast to help the public understand what really goes on in these family courtrooms. I'm your host, Marianne Petrie, author of Dismantling Family Court Corruption, Why Taking the Kids Was Not Enough, and Cry Out for Justice, Poems of Truth. Please join us again here with Judy in the future and other guests. Thank you again. I appreciate you. My pleasure. Thank you for allowing me to uh, talk about this. Definitely. And we'll talk again. <laughs> Thank you, Mary.